Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, a string of disappearances occurred in Ireland's southeast, an area that would be known as the Vanishing Triangle. Despite extensive investigations, many of these cases remain unsolved to this day, leaving families and investigators with nothing but a bunch of loose ends and cold cases. When 19-year-old Deirdre Jacob disappeared just metres from her home in 1998, Operation Trace was set up in the hope of determining if this and the other cases involving missing women in Ireland were linked and if a serial killer was responsible. Today, we'll look at seven women who disappeared in this region, none of whom were ever found, and explore the theories, evidence, and possible explanations behind this chilling phenomenon. Hello everyone and welcome back to Red Room. Welcome back to the final episode in our series. I hope you're all enjoying it so far and if you have been I would really appreciate that you follow, subscribe and leave me a five-star review if you have enjoyed any of the episodes. I've been loving seeing which episodes you're loving, which episodes uh, you're resonating with most and I hope that all of the series has been enjoyable for you as much as it has been for me. Today we're talking about the Vanishing Triangle in Ireland and this is just an absolutely insane case. It's it's something that I didn't know much about until I really dug into. I had heard of a few of these cases separately but I didn't know about the proximity of the cases. I didn't know about how many missing women in Ireland really there were so I hope you will enjoy this. While the Vanishing Triangle officially begins with the 1993 disappearance of Annie McCarrick, some speculate that the disappearances began the decade earlier. The first of those cases is Phyllis Murphy who went missing while while waiting for a bus. Her murderer was found 23 years later and convicted with the help of DNA evidence found at the scene. See, this case was different because they have a body. The cases we're discussing today have been lying cold for almost 30 years. And despite the cases being constantly re-examined, new leads being explored and new suspects popping up, the police have never found any of the women's bodies. The area we're discussing today is in the east of Ireland, in Leinster, and it's referred to as the Vanishing Triangle as the women went missing in a kind of triangular shaped configuration. Basically, if you draw a line down from Dundalk to Wexford, through Dublin, into Tullamore, back to Dundalk, you'll see it's almost like a triangle. Ireland is, of course, geographically a very small country and even smaller socially, where most people claim that you've got six degrees of separation between you and anyone in the world. In Ireland, it's more like three or four. 
The area in question today that we're talking about isn't big and most areas within it are accessible by car in a couple of hours, mostly like an hour or two max. Of course, they're like back kind of country roads, so they're also very derelict. But this makes it even harder to kind of narrow down where any crime actually took place as well. Sure, the women went missing in the triangle, but who knows where they ended up. But today, we're going to look at the missing women, the circumstances surrounding their disappearances, and see if we can find any overlaps. First, we have Annie McCarrick, who is 26 years old and originally from Long Island in New York. Annie visited Ireland on a school trip as a teenager and fell in love with the country. Like many Irish Americans, she felt an affinity to Ireland. You know, it's where her ancestors came from and she was very close to the country. She always knew she wanted to live there. And when she was older, she decided to move and she attended college at St. Patrick's College in Drumcondra and in Maynooth in the late 80s. But she would eventually return to Long Island in 1991, where she'd finish out her studies at Stony Brook University. Annie still longed to go back to Ireland though and she made the move on the 4th of January 1993. She found rental accommodation at St. Catherine's Court in Sandymount which is in Dublin and she lived with two other tenants so she had two roommates. At this time she was working as a waitress in the Courtyard restaurant in Donnybrook and in Cafe Java on Leeson Street and she settled into Ireland immediately. You know she had friends here from years before when she was in college and she was no newbie to the city. She knew Dublin quite well. Annie had lots to look forward to in life. She had a great social life, she loved the new city she was living in and her parents were coming to visit her in a couple of weeks at the end of the month so everything was looking up for her. All of her friends said she was in high spirits this week and had really settled in to living back in Dublin. The days leading up to Annie's disappearance went like this. She went to the St. Patrick's Day parade and festival on the 17th of March with her friends and she lived life like any normal young woman. Hanging out with her friends, visiting them, going to work, nothing really seemed unusual. On the morning of March 26th, the last day Annie would be seen alive, she visited her bank where she's captured on CCTV. This is the last absolute confirmed sighting of Annie. On March 26th, again, she would make a call to a friend of hers and ask them whether they would like to go on a walk with her to the Wicklow Mountains. Now, they couldn't come, so Annie would take that walk alone. It's one of the many times in today's podcast that you will see, you know, a small decision could have changed someone's outcome. But, you know, that's the thing about hindsight. It's, of course, 2020. Now, although these are the last confirmed movements of Annie, there are two unconfirmed sightings that we should mention. One friend of hers said they saw Annie getting on a bus that they were on on the upper deck at around half three, same afternoon. But they didn't speak because the bus was completely packed. And as I said, they were on different levels. And, you know, this is the days before mobile phones where you could text your friend being like, I'm on your bus, you know, so she just kind of ignored it. The doorman of a well-known pub called Johnny Fox's said he saw her outside the bar that night with an unknown man. This man is yet to be identified and he was apparently wearing a wax jacket. The man also paid Annie in to the saloon part of the bar, but we don't know who he is. These unconfirmed sightings, though, they do have to be taken with a pinch of salt. And they're going to be a reoccurring factor in all the cases that we're going to mention today. Many people report things they feel they saw, but because memory is just not very reliable, sometimes they can confuse days and that can delay an investigation. 
Annie had invited two of her friends over to dinner at her apartment the next day. When the pair of her friends turned up for dinner and Annie wasn't home and the ingredients she bought for dinner were left out on the counter to spoil, they grew really concerned. It was not like Annie to no-show and both of her roommates had gone home for the weekend so the apartment was completely empty. Her friends immediately contacted Annie's parents in New York and she was reported missing. John and Nancy McCarrick arrived in Ireland shortly after their daughter was reported missing but left after a six-month-long and unsuccessful search. Over the 30 years since Annie McCarrick disappeared, Gardy kept the case open and active, with a dedicated investigation team based at Irish Town Garda Station, where her friend reported her missing in 1993. But still to this day, there has been no sign of Annie, and they now consider the case to be a homicide. Next, we have Ava Brennan, who was 39 when she disappeared. She was from Rathgar and she went missing on the 25th of July 1993, so just a couple of months after Annie. Despite being reported missing only three months after another missing woman in Dublin, Ava Brennan's disappearance did not seem to garner as much attention from the Gardaí, from the media or from the general public. Her case was also one of several missing women's cases that were not investigated by Operation Trace. Maybe it was because she was older and not an American woman who arrived to Ireland full of hopes and dreams. Or maybe it's because Ava had struggled with her mental health issues. So her case was never seen as anything more than a wayward woman who finally had enough. According to her family, Ava was a creature of habit. And the day she went missing was a normal day for her. She attended mass, she was a deeply religious person, and she walked to her parents' home in Rathgar for Sunday lunch. Ava and her family had a small argument that day. Apparently Ava complained that they'd be eating lamb again for lunch, which she didn't like. And after things got a little heated, Ava decided to leave and return to her own home. When none of Ava's family had heard from her the next day, her father decided to call over to her apartment and got no response. He became understandably very worried. He broke into her home and noted that the apartment was almost suspiciously clean. Eva was not known to be a spotless person and keep such an impeccable house. He reported his daughter missing later that day, but the guardie did not seem overly worried, despite another young woman going missing only a few months before. The last confirmed sighting of her was when she was seen leaving her parents' home. But it appears she did return to her apartment that day because the coat she was wearing at their house when they were having lunch was found hanging in the apartment. According to Ava's sister and family, they were told by Gardy that since Ava was over 21 years of age, they did not believe her disappearance was the result of a crime. Honestly, no words. When the family told Gardy Ava had suffered from depression, they immediately suspected it to be a suicide, despite the fact that Ava was not currently showing signs of depression at all, and she was a devout Catholic, so taking her own life would be in direct conflict of her own beliefs. No trace of Ava has ever been found. Josephine Dullard was known as Jojo to her friends. She was just 21 when she went missing on November 9th, 1995. She'd been working in Dublin for a few years, but was originally from Kilkenny. She was finding city life tough and expensive, and she had recently accepted a job closer to home. It was in a local pub in her hometown, and apparently she was happy for the change. 
Jojo was receiving social welfare and had not managed to change her address on the system yet. As we all know, that kind of stuff can be really, really hard and a long process. So she needed to go to her old neighbourhood of Harold's Cross to collect her payment. Public transport in Ireland is pretty few and far between, especially if you live in a rural area outside the city. It's not unusual to have to wait up to an hour, sometimes more, for a private coach to bring you home. And they will not run late into the night, so if you miss it, you're pretty much screwed. She collected her dole, but there was no bus back home until 6pm, and this was around the middle of the day. So she went to Bruxelles, which is a popular pub in town, and one that she would be in pretty often. And, you know, she went here with the hopes that some of her friends would be around, and they were. So later on that evening, her ex-boyfriend joined her and her friend in Bruxelles, and apparently her and her ex had kind of rekindled their flame, especially on this night. So Garda's statements say that Jojo had kind of planned on staying with him in Dublin of the night because at this point they were drinking into the night and she had missed her last bus home. But in a twist of fate, like we see in so many of these cases, her ex-boyfriend's current girlfriend showed up and this obviously meant that Jojo was left alone and stranded with no way home. She decided to do what a lot of people do. She went to the bus station to get as far as she could on public transport and hitchhike the rest of the way home. Of course, on paper and with the gift of hindsight, this seems extremely unsafe because it is, but it was common practice in the 90s, especially in more rural areas. She got a bus to Nace at 10pm that night and the driver of the bus recounted to the guardie that he actually had to wake Jojo up at the depot. She began her hitchhiking journey home and she was soon picked up by an elderly man who offered to take her as far as the town of Kilcullen. He later said to police that he advised Jojo of the dangers of hitchhiking and suggested she stay in a B&B in Kilcullen but apparently she was determined to get home. She hitched another ride home from a younger guy who was able to take her as far as a town called Moon, leaving her around 45 minutes in a car from her home. At this stage, it was 11.30pm and Jojo went to a phone box in Moon to call her friend Mary while also attempting to flag down passing cars. She got through to her friend and she told her where she was, about her day in Dublin, and she told her friend to hold on a second because there was a car coming that she wanted to try flag down. Around 30 seconds later, her friend said she came back to the phone, said she got a lift and she was on her way. The phone call would be the last time Mary or any of Jojo's friends or family would have any contact with her. Like most of the cases we're discussing today, there will have been reports of seeing Jojo elsewhere or at different times. Numerous witnesses from a village of Castle Dermot came forward to the Gardaí, stating that they saw a woman matching her description walking the main street of the village close to midnight. One man said he saw her as he walked into the chipper and he said she was walking towards a road that would take her towards Carlo. And this would have been the direction Jojo would have had to take if she was heading from Castle Dermot back to her home in Kilkenny. But none of the Castle Dermot sightings could be fully confirmed and made the investigation all the more complex. One year later, a story that honestly like sends chills down my spine uh, came forward. A taxi man came to the guardie saying that the night Jojo vanished, he saw something very suspicious, to put it lightly. He said he was driving down a road and he noticed a car pulled up on the hard shoulder with a man urinating outside of it. At first, he thought nothing of it. You know, it's not unusual for someone to take a bathroom break until 
A young woman matching Jojo's description suddenly bolted out of a car and tried to run onto the road. He said she was barefoot and appeared to be trying to escape. But as she was making her getaway, another man emerged and grabbed the woman around the waist and dragged her back to the car. He said the car then drove off at an incredible speed. There is legitimacy to this sighting as well. He said the car was most likely a red Ford Sierra and it had an English reg plate, meaning it could have come from the north of Ireland. A female witness from Moon reported seeing a woman matching Jojo's description running from the village's only phone box into the backseat of a four-door car. She thought the car might have been a Toyota Carina, which is very similar in appearance to a Ford Sierra. Despite all the sightings of Jojo and the details we have on her last day, none of her friends or family have seen or spoken to her since she called her friend that November night from the payphone. All of these cases are so frustrating as much as they are heartbreaking. So many times, if one woman made one different decision, they might still be alive. If Annie's friend had joined her on the walk, maybe we'd know who this mystery man was. Or if Jojo's ex-boyfriend didn't meet her in Bruxelles, she might have made her bus home. But this is really what hindsight does to us. Really, the only thing that would have stopped these women vanishing is the absence of the person who took them away. Fiona Pender went missing on the 23rd of August 1996 when she was 25 years old and seven months pregnant. She was living in Tullamore at the time with her then boyfriend who she had recently moved home with from London. After a day of shopping with her mother for the day, picking up things for the new baby, she returned back to her family home with her mom, stayed for a few hours and went home with her mom by taxi. Her mom escorted her home in the taxi. They made plans to meet the following day, which was a Friday, but unfortunately, that would be the last time she saw her daughter Fiona. On the Friday, her mother went over to her apartment, but she saw that the blinds were pulled down and she kind of presumed that like her daughter, who was heavily pregnant after a big day shopping yesterday on her feet, she might have been resting, so she decided to leave. Later on in the evening, Fiona's father walked by the apartment and he said that the blinds were still closed and the lights were off. By Saturday afternoon, neither of Fiona's parents had heard from her. So they decided to call her boyfriend and he said he thought she was with them. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He said the last time he saw Fiona was 6am the Friday morning when he was leaving for work and apparently she was on her way out as well. This was that Friday that she was meant to meet her mother. He said after a long day's work on the farm that his family owned, he stayed in his family home and he presumed Fiona stayed with them. Now Fiona left her passport, her clothing, credit cards in the apartment and there was no sign of a struggle found there either. Two chilling sightings alarmed the guards though. The first witness told Gardy that sometime around 2am on the 23rd, he'd been walking home from a pub on Church Street in Tullamore when he spotted two men placing a large bulky item that was wrapped into a carpet in the back of a large 4x4. 
The second witness told Gardie that on Friday morning, while he was driving on a small country road in the Schlieve Bloom Mountains, a 4x4 vehicle with one occupant came driving towards him erratically and at an extremely fast speed, and that the vehicle had a large sticker on the windscreen that read, Keeper Lit. No further information on these sightings ever came forward. On the 24th of April 1997, Fiona's partner, along with his father and three sisters, were arrested in relation to Fiona's disappearance. After 12 hours of questioning, all of them were released without charge, as there was not enough evidence to link them to her disappearance. It being Ireland, rumours began circulating that neighbours heard Fiona and John arguing loudly from time to time. And John's name turns up countless times in connection to the case now, especially online. No further arrests have ever been made in relation to Fiona's disappearance, nor has any trace of her ever been found. Despite reports from neighbours that John and Fiona could have been heard arguing loudly at times, no evidence of any form of struggle or crime were found at the apartment during the Guardi's forensic examination. There is simply little evidence of anything that could explain the presumed abduction and murder of Fiona and her unborn child. A woman who is anonymous for privacy reasons, living abroad sometime later, accused her husband of a range of violent and sexual attacks on her. She went to police and she linked him to the disappearance of Fiona and also her presumed murder. She told them that when, in a rage, her husband threatened her and strongly implied that he killed Fiona and that she would be next. She said he buried her body in the Schlieve Bloom Mountains. Those mountains where that 4x4 was seen but searches turned up negative for both Fiona and her unborn child. As you can see so far, the missing women really don't have that much in common. There is no obvious profile, no specific hair colour or age that an apparent serial killer would be targeting. This may be why the cases had not been tied together and viewed as a series of individual disappearances, but they were nowhere near finished. Kira Breen was just 17 years old when she vanished from her hometown of Dundalk in 1997. Kira was last seen going to bed on the night of the 13th of February by her mother. That evening, the pair had dinner together at a local restaurant and went home to watch Bad Boys on VCR. It's believed that that night, Kira snuck out of her house to meet someone, since she vanished without a trace when her mother intuitively decided to go check on her at around 2am. Her mother later told the TV crime show Crime Call, I got up at 2am to go to the toilet and I looked in her bedroom and she wasn't there. She didn't take any money or clothes with her. It's as if she went to meet someone and never came home. Gardy began to investigate Kira's case further. It became clear she had been in contact with an older man in the days before her disappearance. This same man was known to her parents. Her mother had actually chased him from their front garden for talking to Kira one day. Kira's friends reported that he had been watching Kira and the group of teenagers at a fast food restaurant a few days before she vanished. The same friends overheard the suspect asking Kira if he could see her later and she apparently replied, I'll sneak out of my house when my mother goes to bed. According to her friends, she regularly snuck out of her house late at night. This person is thought to be Liam Mullen, a Dundalk man who would have been 35 years of age at the time of Kira's disappearance, twice her age. He was arrested in 1999 and later in 2015 in connection to Kira's disappearance but was never charged with any crime. A source close to the investigation explained, Mullen made a number of drunken confessions to the crime on various occasions over the years, but always retracted it when he sobered up. 
Liam Mullen died recently in prison after being arrested on suspicion of drink driving and he swallowed a substance before his arrest. Despite the efforts of the doctors to resuscitate him, he was pronounced dead later that evening, dying from a suspected heroin overdose. At the time of her disappearance, Fiona Sinnott was a young mother. She was only 19 years old and living in a rural village in Wexford. She was a young single mom. Her daughter, Emma, was only 11 months old. Fiona spent Sunday, February the 8th, hanging out with a group of friends in a pub not far from her rented home. Her friends described Fiona as being happy that night, in good spirits, but she was complaining about a pain in one of her arms. And unfortunately, Fiona had been the victim of domestic violence in the past, so this report in her arm raised suspicions of Garda when she was reported missing. That night, Fiona's ex-boyfriend and father of her child was also at the pub, but he didn't join Fiona and her friends, and he spent the night drinking at the bar alone. At midnight, Fiona was seen leaving the pub with her ex-boyfriend. He would later tell Gardi that they walked the short distance to her home and he spent the night on Fiona's sofa. He also mentioned this phantom pain that Fiona was experiencing and he said on Monday the 9th of February she decided she was going to go to visit the doctor and would hitch a lift there. He got a lift home uh, from his mom to his family home and that's actually where their child had been spending the night the night previously. Fiona never arrived at a doctor's office and no sightings of her hitchhiking have ever been reported, nor has anyone ever come forward saying that they gave Fiona a lift that morning. In the days after Fiona's disappearance, neighbours reported seeing numerous black bins outside of her home and when Gardy searched it and forensically examined her house, they discovered no evidence of foul play but noted how suspiciously clean the house was. Fiona's landlord would later tell Gardie that whenever he visited Fiona's home, there'd be bits and bobs everywhere, you know, anything that is expected from a young mother with a little baby. A few weeks after she vanished, a local farmer came forward with some pretty crazy information. He said that he found numerous black bin bags on his property one day while looking out on his land while taking care of his cattle. He opened one of these bags and he said he found some letters addressed to a Fiona Sinnott. But at the time he was completely unaware that Fiona had been reported missing and he presumed it was just a case of illegal dumping and he burnt the evidence. Tragically, no trace or evidence relating to Fiona Sinnott has been found since. In 2005, Gardy arrested and detained a man on suspicion of her murder. At the same time, five other people, including three women and two men, were arrested and detained in connection with the investigation. However, no person has ever been charged. Often considered the last case of the vanishing triangle, Deirdre Jacob was only 18 when she went missing on the 28th of July 1998, five months after Fiona Sinnott. Deirdre had been living in London, studying at St. Mary's University, and she'd come home for the summer. Her case is honestly terrifying. She vanished metres from outside her parents' home in the middle of the day, in broad daylight. She'd gone out for a walk to a nearby town of Newbridge that day, and she called into her grandmother along the way, and then she went to the AIB bank to collect a bank draft. She then went to a local post office and sent a bank draft to London to pay for her second year in college. Again, we're left with chilling CCTV imagery of Deirdre's last movements. She left for home around 3pm, passing a friend on her way and spoke briefly. She was seen by two neighbours within a couple dozen metres from her house at around half three. But Deirdre would never make it home that day. She seemed to vanish without a trace. 
The road she was walking home on was a country road, but a busy country road. Some people speculate that she was suddenly abducted by a predator in a car, but it's still so baffling to contemplate someone being taken so swiftly with no noise and no witnesses. So let's talk about the suspects. Of course, reading all of these cases in succession is infuriating. While some of the cases have obvious suspects, others are more mysterious, but they all have one thing in common. No body has ever been found. It is extremely challenging, to say the least, to charge someone for murder without a body, never mind convict them. I mean, you've no proof the person is in fact dead. You've also no cause of death. You've got no murder weapon and all really it's just circumstantial evidence. That being said, it does feel in many of these cases that the Garda could have done more to find the bodies of the women or look further into those that had more obvious suspects but with very little evidence to link the crimes, say for a geographical area and the suddenness of their disappearance, they really didn't have a lot to work with. It is suspected that at least some of the cases were due to a serial killer acting either alone or with an accomplice. When Deirdre Jacob disappeared, Operation Trace was set up by former Guardi Commissioner Pat Byrne to investigate the disappearances of Fiona Sinnott, Jojo Dullard, Deirdre Jacob, Kira Breen, Fiona Pender and Annie McCarrick, who all vanished from the Vanishing Triangle area between 93 and 98. It should be mentioned though that there were many more women who vanished and were reported missing in this area around the same time. Antoinette Smith was murdered and found in the Wicklow Mountains after she attended a David Bowie concert in 1987. So was Patricia Doherty. Marie Kilmartin was murdered and found in a bog in 1993, only a few months after Annie McCarrick disappeared. Imelda Keenan disappeared when going to collect a dole payment and she was never seen again. And Catherine Madigan disappeared in 1998, and her clothes were found on Bray Head three months later. It's almost impossible to draw a line at where the Vanishing Triangle cases begin and end, as some women were murdered and gone missing both before and after the usual parameters. Of course, a heavily wooded or bogland area is a typical place to dump a body, so the term is really just that, a term. Instead, what we're looking at is a string of missing women who have left behind families, loved ones, and even children, and whose murderers and abductors have got away scot-free, walking amongst all of us for close to 30 years. One potential suspect touted in the past was a man called Larry Murphy. Honestly, a terrifying and sick man who was jailed for the rape and attempted murder of a young woman in Carlo in 2001. His case is chilling and look, there's plenty of information out there about it if you wish to read about it yourself. But what I will tell you is that he abducted a young woman after work, raped her, brought her to the Wicklow Mountains with the intention of murdering her. He was sentenced to 15 years in jail, but only served 10 and was released in 2011. His victim's life was saved when two hunters happened upon the scene They also happened to know Larry Murphy and helped identify him, which led to his arrest. There was circumstantial evidence linking him to the disappearances of both Jojo and Annie, like where he brought his victim being so close to the last place Annie was seen alive, and the car he drove and the way of abducting someone being so similar to Jojo. But the evidence against him in relation to Deirdre Jacob is far stronger. 
It turns out he had visited the shop owned by Deirdre's grandmother on multiple occasions. And a prisoner who knew him in prison said Larry Murphy bragged to him about how he abducted Deirdre while asking for directions and he killed her with a hammer and dumped her body in a lake. Just last year, Garda confirmed a criminal file was sent to the DPP and after evidence was reviewed, it was decided not to bring any criminal charges toward him. Although he has never been charged with any of these vanishing triangle cases, do we really believe that this was his first and only instance of abduction and attempted murder of a woman? And that on this first case that went so well, he just happened to be caught? Especially since he was so fast at doing it, there was no witnesses. If those hundreds had not been out there, that woman would absolutely be dead and who knows if her body would have ever been found. Oftentimes when you hear about this case, you'll hear murmurings of a serial killer, but personally, I don't think it's the case. The suggestion is so tempting because if it were the work of one or even two psychopaths, it would mean that Ireland is a relatively safe place, the harmless island that we all want to think that it is. Even as someone who watches, listens and makes true crime content, I often find myself thinking, oh, like, thank God I don't live in America where this kind of stuff happens. But the reality is it does happen here and it continues to. Only a few years ago, Justine Valdez was abducted close to her home in Enniskerry in 2018, the same town that Annie McCarrick went on her walk and the last place she would be seen alive. Justine was abducted by a man called Mark Hennessy, who later was shot by police. There was even eyewitnesses to her abduction who reported it to the police, but it was too late. By the time police found him, he had already killed Justine and dumped her body in the gorse near Puck's Castle in South County Dublin. Unfortunately, as we saw last week, when someone is killed, they most likely know their killer. And when a woman is killed, most of the time, it's done so by her partner. It's impossible to know what happened to women who both disappeared and were murdered within the Vanishing Triangle. But unfortunately, it's much more likely that whoever did this to them was someone known to them. Maybe someone they trusted or just someone they felt would keep them safe, even for the time being. This, to me, makes it all the more heartbreaking. Claire McGowan, author of The Vanishing Triangle, The Murdered Women, Ireland Forgot, a book I primarily use to research this podcast and I would really recommend if you want to look into more of it, She makes a compelling argument that these unsolved cold cases were due to multiple factors in Ireland at the time, both cultural and political. The Troubles up north would have put a huge amount of extra pressure on the Gardaí, and the daily bombings and terrorist violence that was happening over the border dominated the news at the time. Culturally, Ireland's repressed approach to sexuality, mental health, meant that some of the women were blamed for their own disappearance, and our tendency to avoid getting caught up in someone else's business could have deterred many witnesses from bringing valuable information to the guardie. I will leave information below about the Vanishing Triangle. All cases are still considered open, and many, if not all, are now being seen as murder cases. And I really hope that their families one day will find closure. This was the final episode of the first season of Red Room. If you haven't watched the other nine episodes, why not go back and binge them all? Make sure you subscribe and leave me a five-star review if you enjoyed the series. Until then, if you want weekly content like this, you can check out the Patreon. I'll link it below. Thank you all for watching and I will see you very soon.